Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the podcast, The Joyful Frugalista, and now here's your host, Serena Bird. This podcast is brought to you by The Joyful Fashionista, an online marketplace for buying and selling secondhand and sustainable clothing. Make cash selling as you declutter or buy sustainable and fabulous fashion. You my frugalisters and welcome. Today I have a special guest and of course all of my guests are special. But this guest is someone whose first book really encouraged me to get into property investing back in 2005. And should I say, get into property investing then in a bit of a big way. But first, I have a favor to ask of you. If you enjoy this podcast and find it useful for you, please pay it forward by sharing with a friend. And even better, please follow the Joyful Frugalister podcast. Steve McKnight is a chartered accountant, fund manager, and real estate expert, and he most certainly is an expert. He escaped the rat race by replacing his salary with positive cash flow income from his property investments. He is best known for being one of Australia's most successful real estate authors, with his first book, From Zero to 130 Properties in 3.5 Years, going on to sell more than 200,000 copies. His second book, Zero to 260 Plus Properties in 7 Years, was also a number one bestseller. Steve has donated all of the royalties from his book, which is more than $1 million, to social and environmental causes. And today, we're going to be talking a bit about his new book, which I'm super excited to read, and it's called Money Magnet, How to Attract and Keep a Fortune That Counts. Welcome, Steve. Woohoo! Here I am! <laughs> what, a, what an introduction! Well, it's uh, all true. You're, you're pretty awesome. It is all true. If you if if that could be read out at my funeral, people might be impressed. But uh, it it was never designed to be a, a one man crusade to build a a nice introduction. My my goal was and has always been to regain control of my time and my freedom and not have to worry about money. And that's what I'm big on. So back to the start, like what got you started in investing in the first place? I hated my job. I couldn't do it anymore. In fact, I ended up with. Uh, personal scoop story. We'll call them ulcers on unusual body parts caused by stress. <laughs> I actually went to the doctor who had a surgery next door to where my wife and I were living. And you never want to hear these words from the doctor. You know, you've got to drop your pants and hmm, I've never seen that before. So it was a, a bit of an embarrassing situation. And he said, you better leave this with me. I need to do some research. And then he came back to me and he'd photocopied a page out of a journal and He'd written in big green letters, which I always thought was funny because I was an auditor at the time. And he said, take a holiday. Uh, and for me, it was a giant wake up call. If I had have kept going and doing what I was doing, I might have been in store for an early grave. And I had to go and do something different. I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. And for anyone out there who hates the idea of Sunday nights because Monday mornings work, that's where I was. And, you know, it's so common and I think so many of us were fed this kind of line that work would be, our career would be what mm. defines us and that what gives us meaning in life. And yet the reality is it's not, it's often not the case. And I think about women, uh, I have a wife and two daughters and I think just how much harder it is for women because they have so many different identities to try and manage. They've got partner, mother, 
friend, career woman, any number of different roles that they have to play. And I think it's, I think it is harder for women to try and manage all of them and to try and figure out who they really are. It would be quite, quite complicated, which is why women are so much smarter than men, because men are just, you know, (laughs) we struggle to do one thing well. Imagine trying to manage multiple things. We would collapse and fall in a giant heap. Uh, look, it is possible, but I, I think as, as a woman who did have a career in the public service, I think one of the key issues, and I've heard this from many others, is that often your ideas often aren't taken into account too. So there's that lack of creativity in the workplace, which adds to the stress. So for women particularly, I think it's really important to have more autonomy over your finances because it gives greater choices. And and one of, this is one of the themes that we talk about in Money Magnet, how sometimes our habits and our thoughts around money are inherited from our parents. And we're not too many generations away from when the father worked and the mother ran the home. And so I think for women, as they evolve into their own masters of their own financial futures, rather than sort of in, in growing up, my mum, for instance, dad gave her a packet of cash every fortnight from his pay back when people used to be paid cash and she ran the home out of that money. And she wasn't given the tools to be financially savvy from her parents because it was expected that she would she would rely on my father to do that. Mm-hmm. And so as we we have this massive awakening as a community that, hang on a second, we really need to empower everyone to be in control of money. And, and people wake up to this, oh, what do I do? How do I put it together? That's where books like, I think, Scott Pape's Barefoot Investor and hopefully Money Magnet can start to have that conversation with people around, hang on, maybe no one's ever taught you, maybe no one's ever shown you how to become personally empowered financially. It is so important. You can't just expect for a man to be your financial plan, or in fact, anyone to be your financial plan. I mean, you just never know what's going to go in life. And even if your man is your financial plan, he may not be around forever. I nearly lost my husband from a heart attack. He's fine now. He's fine now. But you don't want to be reliant on that. I think my girls say to me, Dad, a man is not a plan. And I'm like, oh, okay, that kind of rhymes. I I quite like that. (laughs) Excellent. So going back to your first book, so one of the things that really struck out to me, that really resonated with me with your first book, was that Around that time, negative gearing was such a buzzword. There were so many products that were being sold around, buy this, it'll be negatively geared, you can gain your tax offset, yada, yada, yada. But you were really very strong about talking about passive income and positive gearing. I just wanted to acknowledge that that was really a game shifter. Yeah. And for the people who are watching or listening to this, what is negative gearing? Let me just quickly explain it. It's a strategy where the expenses associated with the property are higher than its income. So that's the negative part, negative cash flow, negative negative income. But you hope that its value goes up more than the cash flow or the income, the loss that you make on the rent. So you're, you're net better off. And then what you can do is there's a side benefit in that the loss that you make because your expenses are greater than your income you can use as a deduction against the income tax you would pay on your salary to bring your overall tax burden lower. So the way it's marketed is, here's a fantastic way to save tax while you also build wealth. What could go wrong? (laughs) A lot of things could go wrong. (laughs) Indeed. And I looked at that strategy and I just asked a very simple question. And it was, how many negatively geared properties would I have to own in order to never have to work again? 
And that simple question blew up the strategy because the more negatively geared properties you have, the more negative cash flow they have, the more negative cash flow you have, the more you need your job. So while negative gearing definitely can build wealth, it wasn't, it wasn't the strategy for me that I was looking for because it tied me more to my job. It actually decreased my financial security by causing me to rely on employment income more. I needed a strategy which meant that the more property I owned, the less I needed my job. And so almost the exact opposite of negative gearing was the strategy that I prosecuted, which was called positive gearing. And that's when you buy a property where the income is greater than the expenses, that's the positive, plus you also get capital growth. Years later, I met a young real estate agent, his name was Crackers up in Ballarat when Dave and I, who's my business partner at the time, were buying a lot of property. And I was explaining negative gearing and positive gearing to crackers. And he turned around, he looked at me, and he goes, Steve, I'm a simple fella. Surely positive is better than negative. And I was like, <laughs> crackers, that's that's the easiest way of remembering it. And sometimes people let the tail the, the tax tail wag the investing dog. They they do things for tax reasons. When I say the primary goal of an investor should be to make money, not save tax. Yeah, well said. My accountant says if you're paying tax, it's because you're making money. That's not a bad thing. Your accountant sounds like a wise person. No, he is. He's very good. And I definitely recommend getting a good accountant. It definitely makes sense. So do you still invest in property? Is it still your investment vehicle of choice? Is it what you recommend for other people? Yeah, I was on an interesting journey, Serena. So I went from naught to 130 properties in three and a half years and 130 properties to naught in three and a half seconds. Because in 2006, my business partner and I decided that we'd achieved our goals and he bought me out of the property portfolio that we'd built together. And then I had to start rebuilding my property portfolio again. Now, it's important for everyone to know that I'm not pro-property. Property was just the vehicle that I used to achieve my outcome. I'm pro-outcome. And so I'm not wedded to the idea of real estate or shares or crypto or whatever it might be. I'm, I'm just more about what's the outcome that you're trying to achieve and what's the quickest way for you to get there? Because we're all good at doing something. That's what we get paid for in a job. We get paid for solving problems. So if we can find an investing context that makes use of the skills that we've got, then that's our natural advantage to, to be making money. So where are we at with real estate today? I own I think three or four commercial properties but I have more than half a million dollars a year of investment income, net investment income from those properties. So I've found that the more property you own, generally the more aggravating it is. And <laughs> I was talking, I, we were talking before about a particular issue I have with some maintenance or a lack of attention to maintenance. So I certainly hear you. Yeah. And I wanted a simple life. I didn't want to swap a job as an accountant for a job as a property manager. So those those few properties that I own now are commercial properties. I send an invoice, the tenant pays the rent. I don't have to worry about it. I don't have to worry about tenancy tribunals and toilets getting blocked in the middle of the night or anything else like that. So yeah, I have a smaller portfolio today that brings in more income and is easier to manage because the, the goal of every investor is to make the most money in the quickest time for the least risk and lowest aggravation. And if you can do that, then your investing will be a blessing, not a burden. It's been an extraordinary time for property the last couple of years. I mean, from the beginning of COVID where people thought that everything was going to collapse, tenants were having trouble paying rent, to suddenly seeing this uh, skyrocketing in prices with this property bubble along with low interest rates. 
to interest rates going up very quickly and we're now seeing a bit of a downturn or at least the, the trend is turning around. Is it still possible for people to get started with positively geared property in this market, do you think? Look, every rented property in Australia is theoretically positively geared until you borrow against it. And then the more you borrow, the more interest you have to pay, the more principal you have to repay and the lower the cash flow will be. It was never easy right from when I started 1999, which is a long time ago, to, to find and buy positive cash flow properties on loan to valuation ratios of 80% or more. That is borrowing 80% of the purchase price or more. And it's only gotten harder. What I think will likely happen, though, unless the government intervenes again and finds another way to keep inflating property prices, is that there'll be some sort of reckoning. When interest rates went down, cash flow in increased because the loan repayments went down, but now interest rates are going back up again. It's getting harder and harder to find positive cash flow property. So I think, and what I advocate for people to do is use residential property for growth in the short term while they build their capital. And then when the time comes to swap over to commercial real estate for income, because a dollar of commercial real estate is usually plus outgoings. A dollar of rent of residential real estate is usually inclusive of outgoings. Now, this is a, a bit of an advanced concept. It's, it's sort of the multiplying your money part of the equation. Before you can multiply your money, you need to be able to make money and manage money. And really in, in Money Magnet, the, the three things, the recipe for getting rich, as I call it, there are only three ingredients and they are the ability to save or spend less than you earn. So you've got money to invest then the best return you can get on your money for the risk you're willing to take. And the third ingredient is time. The problem is, Serena, that a lot of people leave it too late to invest. They've got limited ability to save, so they've got to get into the realm of crazy, ridiculous returns, which increased risk. And they're at a time of life where taking risk doesn't make sense. And then that's why three quarters, 75%, actually more than 75% of people live their whole lives, earn a fortune, spend a fortune, and then rely on the pension, which is the age pension, which is actually less than the amount you need. Uh, it's below the poverty line to survive on those golden years of life. It's, it's a tragedy, and it all starts because people don't know how to keep the wealth that they attract. Yeah, this is a big thing for a lot of people I speak with. They They say that they're good at attracting money, but they're not good at keeping the money. They're good at getting, and we are going to be talking about attraction in in line with your title of your book, Money Magnet. So I'm being very conscious about talking about attracting. So they're very good about attracting, but somehow they feel bad about keeping the money. Like somehow it feels selfish for them to keep that money. So they're much more comfortable spending it on other people. I have a friend who was a single mother for many years. She lives in public housing and she said to me, yeah, but you don't understand, like, you know, suddenly I've got these expenses, like, you know, the car needs maintenance and there's this has come up, but we live a good life. We've still had, you know, money for overseas travel. And even though I haven't had a lot of money, we don't go without. So what would you say to people who really struggle with this guilt about holding on to money, thinking that that's bad? It's a very interesting topic, isn't it? First of all, I try not to get judgy on people and say, you know, you should spend less more, less money. <laughs> no, the problem's you because that, that's very preachy and, and, like I say, very judgmental and, and not helpful. Often people don't know how to spend less because they don't have the skills of spending less. All their life they've, they've spent everything they've earned, some 
cases more than they've earned because they've never had the the skill to to manage their money better. They've never been taught it. They've never been shown it. So how are they supposed to know? And so there's no guilt that I would lay on someone for not doing better. I think the only people who can be told off for not doing better are people who knew better and chose not to do it. If you didn't know, you can't really be condemned for not knowing. We don't teach financial management at school. The reason why we don't teach it is the curriculum's already full and, and who would really know how to teach it anyway? And so unless you've gone out on your own to try and acquire those skills, and a lot of people are scared to do so because they weren't good at maths at school and so they see personal finance as an extension of maths class and they hated that. And so there's this ignorance of, well, if I get it, I spend it. And perhaps there is some guilt maybe to do with parent, parental upbringing or faith or some other thing that causes people to look at money and go, oh, it's dangerous, oh, it's evil. Oh. And so rather than using it, they tend to avoid it. And for instance, that little scenario you gave before, what comes to mind is that if people aren't putting away money for rainy days and reserves, well, then when the crisis comes, then there's there's no reserves to rely upon. And so desperation is is typically what happens. I've found generally in Australia, not for everyone, but for most working people, they don't have an earning problem. I mean, unemployment's at ridiculously low levels and pays are pretty good in Australia on world standards. Yes, they could be higher, but they're still pretty good. Most people have a spending problem because out of the gate, they get used to living a lifestyle in excess of what they can afford and using debt to fund it. And then once you use debt, the more and more debt you get into, the more and more income from tomorrow that you've accessed today and the more tomorrows you have to work for no benefit and therefore you end up owing time then you need your job and then at a point in time your job or you need your job more than your job needs you and then that's a very dangerous place to be in but if there is guilt coming back to your question I think if it were me I would say I'd be trying to analyze where does this guilt come from and is it helpful or hurtful to my ability to accumulate wealth it's probably going to be hurtful I would have thought Mm, to me it seems obvious right because I'm a frugalista and I like saving money but I do find that a lot of people feel like it's okay to earn but somehow it's not okay to to keep it and to build it but let's talk a little bit about the attraction part Mm. there's a lot of things that have been written and spoken about regarding the law of attraction in fact you know there's a whole movie the secret all about the Mm. law of attraction And, you know, the importance of having our mind in tune to thinking about what we want, receiving it and having gratitude. Is that all there is to it? How do you approach this kind of being a magnet for money? This is certainly not a close your eyes and say it a hundred times and it'll happen book. I I find the, the classic quote, the more you practice, the better you get to be the best way to attract And if you've got the skills, the thoughts, and the abilities to be able to attract money, you will attract money. So it's not a question of say it and it will be. It's a question of do it and it will accumulate. And when I say how to attract and keep a fortune, I'm not talking about the mantras that you say to attract wealth. I'm talking about the habits and skills you employ in order to attract wealth. And more importantly, to keep it. 
So this is not, you know, we could sit here all day long cross-legged in a circle singing Kumbaya, and I'm pretty sure a sack of money wouldn't land on our heads in at five o'clock this afternoon. It's, it doesn't work like that. But if you've got the skills to be able to first earn and then get the highest return you can on the time that you contribute to something, and then you've got the skills to be able to manage that money so that you keep more of it than you spend, then you will accumulate wealth over time. It, it has to be. So if you want to attract more wealth, first become more attractive. That's the line I say in the book. And then what I try and do, I give you the skills and attributes to become more attractive. And these, these are not, as I say, these are not mantras. These are actually mechanics. And you don't have to be smart. I mean, I was not allowed to do maths in year 12 at my high school because they deemed me too mathematically deficient. They thought I'd drag down their pass mark. I didn't do maths in year 12 either, I'll, I'll be honest. But yet I love doing my budget. <laughs> well, I would say as well, you know, when frugal is a word that can mean different things to different people. Some people see frugal as treat, cheap. Some people see frugal as shrewd. I would say you don't have to be tight with your money in order to attract and keep it. You have to be smart with your money to attract it and keep it. And what I've found with frugal people is that they value their money more than they value the spend. And they understand a very important principle, which is imagine your dollar is a little green soldier and it can be in your army or you can put it to use in someone else's army. And so you don't want to spend wantingly or you don't want to spend willy-nilly you want to make your money count so that what you spend it on has meaning. Whereas other people, they don't care. You only live once. You know, don't worry about tomorrow. Worry about today, whatever the saying might be. But that's keeping people poor, Serena. That's not empowering them. And at the end of the day, what's the goal? This is what I say to people because people often don't have a goal. And if you don't have a reason not to spend, you've only got reasons to spend. So one of the so-called secrets to being a better money manager is to have a bigger and better reason not to spend than the bigger and better reason to spend. And if you have no reason to save, you'll only have reasons to spend. That is so powerful and so true. When I was really focused on paying off my mortgage on my previous family home, I just remember that everything I was doing was towards that goal. So there were a few times where I was standing in the line to get a cup of coffee or a treat at work. And to be honest, it wasn't necessarily because I wanted the caffeine or, or the pastry. It was just because, I don't know, I was bored or I just wanted a break from what I was working on or some other reason. And I'd stand in line and then I'd go, do I really want to be spending that $4.50? Not really. So I would go out of the line and I would immediately transfer that money into my mortgage and then I'd go back to my desk and make myself a cup of tea. <laughs> well, what I'd say is that, yeah, a lot of people are in the habit of spending. They're not in the habit of saving. So what we need to do is acquire that habit of saving. And we're not talking about going back to one ply toilet paper and licking the coffee grains off the counter or anything ridiculous like that. We're just saying, well, you know what? And again, I'm I'm actually not a fan of budgets because I see budgets as the stick. I'm a fan of allowances, which is the carrot. Because when we were kids, we got pocket money. That was our allowance. We were allowed to spend that money. So if you can create carrots and say, look, you know, I can do anything I want. I've got an allowance to do it. But you've got a limit, which is almost the flip side of the coin to a budget. Then to me, that's empowered spending. I used to be quite overweight as a kid. 
No, I've never told anyone this story. This is a genuine, I don't even think I've told my wife. This is a genuine, genuine scoop. A scoop for the joyful free list. I feel so honoured. Well, I, I was quite overweight as a kid. In fact, one of my less flattering nicknames growing up was Captain Blubber. Not good. Kids can be so cruel. Yeah, not good. So my parents were a little bit worried because I was overweight. So they once took me to a dietitian. And the dietitian said, well, let's map out what you're eating. And they mapped it out. And I was scared the dietitian was going to say, right, you're now on a diet of lettuce leaves for the rest of your life. So I went to the dietitian and, you know, what are you eating? And I love hot chips. That's my kryptonite, hot chips. Oh, my goodness. So anyway, she said to me, well, you know what? We don't have to cut out hot chips. Just take it down to one one time a week. And see, when when I hear about people on budgets, most people want to go on a budget so they can come off a budget. They're budgeting to save money so they can spend money. You know, I'm saving up for my trip overseas. Well, <laughs> all you're doing is saving to spend, right? You're, you're in a no better off situation. But if we could have things that we were allowed to do, it turns it from being a negative experience to being a positive experience. And so this allowance of, oh, you can have hot chips a week, you're allowed to do it. All of a sudden, I was like, oh, okay, well, if I'm allowed, I've got something to look forward to rather than a budget, which is I wish I could do it, but my budget says I can't. It's really powerful. And I do want to share too that my husband and I, we each put $100 into a separate card. We actually use our Qantas card, which can also function as a kind of a credit card or a debit card, really, although I don't really like using it when I'm overseas. I find the international rates aren't so good, but I do like it for spending. So we each put $100 on that and we can spend whatever we want on it. So if my yeah. husband, very rarely he go, but sometimes he'll go out with his mates, they'll, they'll want to shout each other drinks. Uh, he's not a big drinker, neither of us are, not that I'm in any way um, validating or not validating this, but it's very empowering for him. He doesn't have to ask my permission to shout his mates a, a, a round of drinks. If I want to go into an op shop, I don't have to ask his permission if I want to buy more bling than I really need. And it's great. It's one of the most empowering things and one of the best things I think about our relationship and how we manage our money. Well, this is another topic which I don't even talk about in the book because, again, I don't want to tell people how to run their own finances. But something my mum said to me when I was growing up stuck, and as I mentioned before, mum used to be given money from dad, but she never felt that she had her own money to spend. Mm. And she said, Steve, when you get married, however you manage your finances, just make sure that your wife has money to spend that she doesn't have to tell you about. She can just enjoy it for herself. Because I think mum never got that. She always felt that dad was controlling her to some extent via money. And although Jules and I, we don't have separate bank accounts, Julie's bank account, my bank account, we only have one bank account. I don't sit there and sift through it and say, oh, you spent $23 on this and $43 on that. What we do is we have a very general way that we manage our money, that if we have more money at the end of the month than we had at the start of the month, we've done well. And if we have less money at the end of the month than we did at the start of the month, then something's gone wrong. And then we go in and say, where did it go wrong? So you can you can be fairly hands off, but I'm I'm in the habit of saving. I'm not in the habit of spending. So if I'm in the habit of spending, I've got to learn that habit of saving first. But once you've got the habit of saving, you don't have to worry about two dollars twenty two or two dollars twenty. You you can continue to just run your habits and know that things will look after themselves. But you need to have that habit first. If you don't have it, that's where the 
accountability of an allowance and tracking your spending is important. Yeah, habits, isn't it? And tracking is so powerful for that mindfulness, for making us aware of what we're doing. You might think you're not eating a lot of hot chips or you might think that you're not buying a lot of shoes. But hot until chips? you until you hot, track hot, hot it, chips? until you've got like a method of saying, you know, like one per week or whatever it is to to track it or to have that rule in place, it's just really easy for it just to spiral, isn't it? Well, it's the blind spots in your spending that will end up hurting you. It's the little bits over and over again that add up to a lot. And people leak money at the end of the day because they don't realise how much, how many holes they've got in the money bucket. And a little bit here and a little bit there, and it actually all does add up over time. And the lazy tax. Oh, my goodness, Australians and the lazy tax. Well, the, the lazy tax, for those that don't know, it tends to be a tax on loyalty. And instead of shopping around for the best deal, you go, oh, who can be bothered? And the companies really try and maximise giving great deals to new customers and, and pretty crappy deals to existing customers because they know people are unlikely to swap over. I'll give you a practical example. I used to be with one energy company and I rang them up and I said, unless you can get me a better deal, I'm going to go to another energy company. And they said, no, you're on the best rate you can possibly get. So I'm like, okay, well, thanks and see you later. So I moved over to the next electricity company. And a week later, the first electricity company rang me up and said, we want you back. We're willing to give you a good deal. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I rang you up and said, can you give me this deal? And you said, no, you can't. Well, now you're no longer a customer. We can. I'm like, what well, forget the? it. You, <laughs> you know, like I've already moved on. Up your nose with a rubber hose. And sometimes you have to actually move to get the deal. Sometimes you can threaten to move to get the deal and sometimes you have to say no. But remember this, right? Your money is better off in your pocket than someone else's. And if you don't value your money, someone else will. And this it's this notion of attraction that I try and get across in the book where are you attracting money or are you repelling money? And if you're repelling money, your money is being attracted to someone or something else. And I make this point. It's a really important point. Unless you have a vision for your money, you're, you're unlikely to ever attract enough money to achieve that vision. Because if you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter how much you've got or don't have. Mm. And if you, want to, if you want to attract more money and if you want to keep more money, you need that reason. If you don't have a reason, you don't have a reason. Having the courage to have that vision is so important too. And you were talking earlier about the sorts of beliefs we have growing up. If you've grown up in an environment where you haven't had a lot and it's really hard to dare to dream, isn't it? But it's 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 really important to have that, just to have that 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 dream that just makes you that little bit uncomfortable because it's just a little bit hard to reach. Then you achieve that and then you can go on and do something else. And sometimes people go, oh, I don't know what to dream about. I don't know if it's right. Well, don't worry about what that might be. Just say what situation are you in you want to get out of? I mean, that was, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was financially free. I just knew I didn't want to be an accountant anymore. And it was such a motivating factor that, and yeah, that people give up when the pain of moving forward is greater than the pain of moving backward. If you constantly have more pain going backwards than going forwards, it's still painful, but you'll make progress. Mm, very wise. So I wanted to actually ask you something a little bit controversial, but I knew you would have views about it. And that is affordable housing because and I know you're mainly into commercial property right now, but you are still a foremost property expert. So 
Is affordable housing achievable, like with these higher interest rates and with the the price of property having skyrocketed during COVID? Like, how is it possible? Is it even possible for people on low incomes to have access to affordable housing? Probably not. I don't think the government has got enough public housing stock, from what I read. And I don't think it's up to investors to provide affordable housing. I think investors have a duty to themselves to make the most money in the quickest time for the least risk and lowest aggravation. Now, some investors may choose to be philanthropic and provide a discount to rent, but I don't think it's an expectation. Nor do I necessarily think the government's programs in affordable housing have been particularly effective. And therefore, this is a complicated problem. I believe that the government is invested in keeping house prices high to support its voter base. And you can't have high house prices and people feeling wealthy at the same time as affordable housing. They are incongruent. So if the government all of a sudden said, right, well, we're going to start going down the road of trying to make house prices more affordable, they must in the same sentence say, we're going to remove the tax breaks on investing. We're probably going to tax housing more because they've got to bring the price of housing down. Investors need a return on their money. And even if they go down the negatively geared road, if interest rates go up and house prices go up, then they've got less and less cash flow and therefore property becomes less and less affordable for them to buy as well. So how do we fix the problem, right? I've thought about this. I've thought, you know, what do we do to fix this problem? I'm, I'm sure all, you would have thought of quite deeply about it, which is why I wanted to ask your views. Well, I think I think we need the government to change the way that it views real estate as a wealth builder to a wealth taxer. So, for instance, removing stamp, I think New South Wales government's on the start of it, removing stamp duty, adding in an annual land tax, smaller amount, but more often, I think removing the capital gains tax discount, returning back to the indexation system is probably the way to go. And I think we've got so much debt in Australia now after trying to bail out COVID that we just need to rethink about the way we do things. And as we remove the incentives for real estate, that should cause prices to go down a little bit. But all this first homeowners grant nonsense is is not really helping first homeowners. It's just giving the sellers of real estate more money because it passes through the hands of the buyer into the hands of the seller. And that's been the case since the start. The bigger question though, Serena, which probably needs to be asked is, is is it good for people to own homes? Mm. Very controversial. Very controversial. I'd be saying to my kids, don't have the goal of owning a home, have the goal of having an income stream that means you don't have to work. Because often the great Australian dream becomes the great Australian nightmare. Because let's play it out, right? If you do what everyone else does, you get what everyone else has got. So first of all, our parents say to us, hey, you should have the goal of dot, dot, dot. Yep. Owning Um, your own home. Yep. Yeah? Yep. Getting married, owning your own home. Very traditional pathway. Got it. Get married, have kids, own your own home, right? These are the things that have been drilled into us from an early age that that become our aspirations. So let's imagine that we do. We get married and then we buy a home. And now we've got a ginormous mortgage because we've reached into decades worth of future income, grabbed a hold of it and spend it now. And we go, this is great because, you know, my home goes up in value over time and then I 
I'm chipping away and paying off the mortgage, doing my best, working, 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 paying, 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 paying. And then my 30s become my 40s, my 40s become my 50s. And I finally paid off the house, but I'm at an age now where I just don't, can't be bothered working as hard or I'm not as inclined to or I want more time to myself. And so you end up in this classic situation of what I call an asset trap because you've got assets that are worth a lot of money, but you don't have the income anymore. And that's the situation we've got with pensioners today. They've got their own home and their own home is worth a lot, but they don't have any income because they've invested their money in paying off their home loan not building other assets with income streams. And so they're rich, but they're what I call the wealthy poor because they have assets that are worth money, but they don't have income to live off. So they live in a nice house, but they've got to eat tomato sauce sandwiches. Yeah, and then the rates bills come in and they go up and it's really hard Yeah, and a crisis comes in. Oh, where do I get the money from, right? So if you want to follow that pathway, you can. But I say to my kids, well, why do what everyone else has done? And when you can do your own thing, try and think about the equation differently. Because, yes, yeah, as I say over and over again, success comes from doing things differently. So what I'd say to people is maybe these, these ideals that you've inherited from your parents without even knowing it is actually setting you up to be poor. So why don't we cast a different vision? And that might be. Don't look at owning a home until you're in your 50s when you can trade out of some of your investments and, and buy your home for cash. Why jump into owning a home in your 20s or 30s and have a mortgage for $500,000 or more and now you're committed for a job for decades? Try and think about things differently to get a different outcome. It is hard to have that mental change. And I know when I was single parenting, you know, making sure that I had a, a roof over my head that was secure was really big for me. When I actually sold the previous family home, I was planning to rent for a while. And strangely enough, I couldn't actually get a rental property that was kind of big enough near the school. Like they were sort of very small and I couldn't sort of imagine how I was going to move from a large house to a, a very small uh, apartment. And it just happened that I bought the apartment where I am, which was a three bedroom that was right close to the school we wanted to be at auction and I was the only bidder. And so I was able to get a good price, but it wasn't kind of how I, I planned it. But I, but I hear you, like, and I sort of think if I had still had the house that I was in, which was a lovely house, all of my weekends would have been spent on maintenance of the house rather than time with my kids or riding or doing other things, which is another thing to consider. You often want the big house for the family, but then realistically, do you really have time to spend time on maintaining that house when you've got a young family? Well, why do most marriages break up, apparently money troubles is a big reason. It is, up to 70%, although it's hard to track. Yeah. And are we setting ourselves up for success with these expectations? I had a chat with some young guys last week. I was out doing a hike trying to raise some money for cancer research. And there were some young people on the hike as well. And they were saying, Steve, but what about us? How are we ever going to afford a home? And I said, well, don't think it was easy in my day either. We we didn't have this magical, easier ability. We We earned less. It was harder to borrow money. And what I say to people is don't worry about what you can't do. Concentrate on what you can do. Because if we spend all this time saying we can't do this and we can't do that and we've got a big list of all the things we can't do, we get frustrated about, that's not going to that's not going to help you. But if you say, well, look, you know, I, I can only do three things. I can do X, Y, and Z. Well, at least you can do three things. Concentrate on what you can do, not what you can't do to move forward. Mm, very wise words. 
Now I have one final question for you and that is do you have a frugalista tip to share? I shouldn't hype this up too much, but, you know, given you are such a guru, I'm expecting you might have something really quite interesting. <laughs> this, is, this has got to be good. Oh. <laughs> no pressure, no pressure. Yeah, absolute pressure. I'm, I'm wilting <laughs> under the strain of it all. Yeah, I, I think what you said before is, is probably stolen my thunder a little bit. I would, I would say to people, just look at where you're paying that lazy tax because a dollar saved is a dollar made. And... Really, you need to start caring about your money. That doesn't mean you have to love money. Money won't hug you back. But you have to you have to place a priority on your money that means that you work so hard to earn it, work that hard to keep it. Now, one little practical tip is I find people subscribe to four or five different TV services these days, Netflix, Apple TV, Paramount Plus. Plus. <laughs> Paramount Plus, and we think, oh, we we justify. We go, oh, if we went to the movies, that'd be $14, and it's only $8 a month for me to get subscription. But what I would say to you is just be smart about it. Choose one subscription service for three months at a time and, and rotate through them. It might mean that you haven't watched the latest show the second it comes out, but it's your allowance. You're allowed to have a TV subscription, just cycle through them. And that way you'll get to watch everything you want, but you'll look forward to it rather than, than be paying, I don't know, thousands of dollars a year potentially for, for services you rarely use. That's the lazy tax. Paying for something you're not using, whether it's a gym membership or whether it's extra data on your internet subscription or it's the TV services we're talking about, just be careful where you leak money. And if you can plug those leaks, you don't necessarily need to earn more in order to start attracting and keeping more money. You've got this, right? You're a smart, intelligent person. Your better and brighter financial future is yours to make. No one else is going to do it for you. You can't expect the government to do it. You can't expect your parents to do it. Your kids won't do it for you. It's on your shoulders. Just find a reason to make it a priority and then start educating yourself because if you don't know, you don't know. Start reading books, my book, other people's books, but just get out there and read widely and start start building skills and you'll be fine. You've got this. It's just that you don't know how to do it at the moment, but you can if you so choose. That is great advice. Thank you very much. And I would add too, the Joyful Frugalist has lots of tips of saving money as well. And yeah, I love saving money. <laughs> well, Serena, I would commend you and I would commend... I would commend this podcast to people because, again, if you don't know what to do, you won't know what, how to do it. And listening to podcasts is a very effective way today to get good quality information that's specific to the need you have at that moment. And I say well done to you to, for putting this out there to try and help people. It's awesome. Well done. Well, thank you so much for being my guest. Now, how can people find you? I'm sure they can buy your book in all good bookstores and online. Absolutely. If you Amazon or Booktopia or your local bookstore, whatever it might be, or you can go to moneymagnet.au, which is my website around the book, and there are some links you can click on to to chase it down there. It's selling at I think twenty two dollars or thereabouts at, at Big W. Hopefully, you can you can afford that twenty two dollars at this point in time. If not, there's probably a copy at maybe even your local library you can go and borrow and. If that's where you are financially, then that's fine as well. That's that's great. Just do what you can do. Don't worry about what you can't do. 
Thank you so much. It's just been such an honor and I have learned so much. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please also join the Joyful Frugalista Facebook group to chat about any of the issues that have come up in this podcast. Thank you so much. What if we... You've been listening to the Joyful Frugalista with Serena Bird. And of course, sound has been by Neil Hadley. the real